Hello and welcome everyone to the first episode of the first season of the ISO Boom podcast. I am your host, Brendel, and before we get started, I want to make sure that every listener, including those that may not know me personally, understand who I am and where I'm coming from when I speak on the things that I'm about to speak on. So as I said, my name is Brendel. Um, I was born and raised in New York City in 1994. During my childhood, my family, including my father and my mom's side, was kind of split between Washington Heights and the Bronx. So all my childhood, I was back and forth um, going to school, visiting family members and things of that nature. You know, I didn't stay in one area of New York all the time. I was always going back and forth, you know, and then fast forward to more recent times. um, I also had my first child 11 years ago now. And she's also in New York City. She also goes to school in New York as well. So, you know, I just want to make sure everybody understands that I'm coming from a perspective of somebody that lives here, have lived here, and have watched the things that I'm about to mention um, in this season in the show. And as I speak to other people who live in New York about some of these issues and why they're affecting us and how they're affecting us, what I've come to realize is that We don't live in a city full of people that don't care about what's going on. At least that's not what I think. I have reason to believe that we didn't become the capital of the world, as many people have called us, by not caring about what's actually going on around us. What I think is actually going on is that the voter integrity in New York City is extremely low, right? Voter integrity meaning the importance of knowing that voting and showing up to the polls and showing up to, you know, these meetings where these politicians are speaking about the thing that they're going to do for you and your family and, you know, setting the stage for you to be able to challenge some of those policies or even ask for validation as to how they're going to make it happen. Protect us. One can't even say that people have lost, you know, trust in, in the system, in the government, you know? And this is the same system that we're supposed to be using in order to speak up and to speak our voices and to make sure that these elected officials are actually representing the best interests of the people and not of companies or of other individuals that are looking to have a certain impact in the community. But we're going to have a whole season to speak about all these things. But today, I want to focus on some of those things that point to the reason as to why we should start paying attention, okay? And a lot of people that have witnessed the character change in the city are going to know what I'm talking about. And the first thing that I want to touch on is housing, right? The city's Department of Housing Preservation and Development, in other words, HPD, holds a New York City housing and vacancy survey every three years since 1965 to determine the city's vacancy rate, which is calculated by dividing the number of occupied units available for rent by the total number of rentable units. So basically, the vacancy rate is the total number of apartments that are available for rent versus the total number of apartments that have been rented, right, in the in the three years that is showing you data. If the vacancy rate in New York City is below 5%, which it has been since 1973, the city is considered to be under what is called a housing emergency, which means that it, it will keep apartments rent stabilized and continue to apply rent regulations in more apartments to control rent. 
with the housing emergency in place, landlords and property owners are prevented from raising rent while already dealing with high property taxes in order to be able to make enough money to operate and make repairs for renters to live. If you guys have taken the opportunity to go to the um, ISO Boom podcast Instagram, you guys will notice that I posted there a reel or two speaking about the housing crisis and how right now, even though we have a low vacancy rate, which will indicate that we will need to build more housing. However, we cannot ignore the fact that there is over 100,000 apartments in New York City sitting right now that are rent regulated that because the landlords of these properties can't raise the rent to an appropriate price so that they can make enough money to cover the operating costs and to pay the property taxes and to even insure the apartments in case of any repairs need to be made. So you can see how it's a problem that neither the city is willing to actually cover and the landlords aren't able to cover because nobody has over a hundred thousand dollars just sitting in a bank account these days now it's also important to point out that the vacancy rate could be low for many reasons other than not enough housing right as i pointed out with the empty ghost apartments as they call it you also have to take into consideration how many of those apartments are actually affordable as long as new New York City continues to stay under a housing emergency. Over 2 million apartments will continue to stay rent regulated, not allowing landlords to raise the rent in some of these apartments, even after the tenant moves out. An article by The Real Deal that unfortunately is behind a paywall right now pointed out how New York City landlords felt that Governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, extended the deadline of the survey by a year in 2021 to save rent stabilization, pointing out that the reality of people leaving New York City during COVID will put the rate above 5%, removing regulations on more than 1 million apartments. So again, the survey gets released every three years. And in 2021, Governor Hochul decided to extend the deadline of the survey basically because of the effects of COVID and landlords knew that if that survey was to come out on time the way it was supposed to, it would show that there's a lot of apartments that are actually sitting empty. Now, the reason why they're sitting empty, as I mentioned earlier, might be a, you know, a whole different story because if these apartments are unaffordable, then, you know, we need to look at these rent regulation laws that are preventing them from becoming affordable. In more recent news, this past February 8th of this year, the vacancy survey acknowledged that the vacancy rate dropped to a staggering 1.4%, the lowest since 1968, with only 33,000 apartments available for rent. And just so you understand why that's bad, because less than 1% of those apartments are $2,500 a month or less. Let me say that again. Just so you understand why that's bad, less than 1% of those apartments, less than 1% have a monthly rent of 2500 or less, which explains why some of these New York lottery affordable housing buildings, the starting price of getting an apartment in some of these um, buildings is 2000 and $500. And if you ask around, if you live in New York City, you will know that there's not a lot of people making 2000 
$500 a month, you know, as, as crazy as that sounds, to have just for rent. The New York Times released the article pointing out in 2022 that there were 5 million housing lottery applicants waiting for rent-stabilized apartments, which gives every applicant a 1 in 590 chance to get an apartment. So when you add on all this information, you add on the migrant crisis that is going on in New, in New York City right now who are waiting to be provided with housing. None of this makes sense. And then you take into account the, you know, as I pointed out, the thousands of apartments that sit empty because landlords can't cover the cost and New York City doesn't want to pick up the tab either. So they're just sitting there just waiting for, I don't know what, you know, and we have a homeless crisis and we have you know, a mental health crisis in the subways going on as we speak right now. So, you know, it would make sense in order to drop the price on a lot of these rents is to, you know, fix up some of these apartments to make them livable so that there's more apartments in the markets so that the price of rent in New York City can then drop to an affordable rate. But for whatever reason, they don't want to do that. It seems like the, the, the current administration and city council just wants to continue giving out housing vouchers and continue to punish landlords um, for simply just trying to make a profit. Um, you know, and just to point out, making a profit doesn't mean putting the tenant's life in danger you know, in any way, shape, or form. It's like, how are you supposed to make sure that that tenant lives in a good place if you don't even have the money to cover the cost to operate these places? So, you know, that's just something to keep in mind. So now let's talk about crime. According to the information given by the New York Police Department Comstat, where you can check citywide and precinct crimes, it stated that shooting incidents were down 24.7% in 2023 compared to 2022. New York One released the article on October 4th, 2023, saying the city saw a 5.6% drop in overall crime. ABC7 released an article on January 2nd of this year confirming the statistics that shootings and homicides Sides were down. But as Sam Antar points out in his article, do shooting statistics really measure gun violence in New York City that he published on February 22nd of this year? Violent crime statistics issued by the New York police departments such as murder, robbery, rape, and felony assaults do not break down the types of weapons used in those crimes. Therefore, the New York Police Department does not release any information relating to the overall violent crime involving the use of firearms. So the public does not have a complete picture of the gun violence. New York City residents are not safer from gun violence merely because shooting incidents have declined over the previous years, nor safer if the data does not capture the actions of shooters who have poor aim. So let me just give you guys some perspective on this, right? According to the New York Police Department Crime and Enforcement Activity Report, a shooting incident occurs only when a firearm is discharged and the bullet strikes a victim. Let's sit on that for a second, right? So meaning if somebody breaks into your home and let's just say they rob you of your possession and they have a gun, but they so happen to not use it. However, you did get robbed. You had the gun held to your head, but they didn't use it. They didn't fire a shot. Therefore, that incident would not be considered gun violence. Okay. And then, you know, it is it, crazy to think about because that means that if you're a criminal and you're committing a crime and you so happen to not know how to aim and you shoot a gun, but you don't hit anybody because you missed, that means that 
the fact that a gun was used in the incident, it's not going to be tallied in the stats. And that is a little concerning. Here's the next thing that's even more concerning. It's also important to understand that even though shooting incidents are down, violent felonies are up by 2.4%. So how is it that crime that involves a gun as a weapon are down, but felonies, felonies that involve weapons are actually up? That doesn't make any sense. If I could recall correctly, there was a story in the news of a, a luxury brand store that was uh, robbed recently by multiple people with masks, with guns. And however, the gun wasn't shot. You know, nobody was shot, thank God, and nobody was hurt. But the fact that these robbers came into the store, they took what they took, they brandished guns in order to take what they take. But because they didn't shoot a single shot, the gun is not going to be noted in that crime. And little pieces of, of information like that is very important in order to determine how much guns are affecting our neighborhoods and our people. In 2023, a total of 2,516 New York City cops left the city. The total number of cops quitting before completing 20 years to collect their pension went from 509 in 2020 to 1,049 in 2023, a 104% percent increase. Cops are citing the workload as the reason, as some are even leaving the department to join the MTA to prevent working so many hours. So cops are literally being overworked, not being paid enough in order to patrol the streets and to keep the city safe. I remember a couple months ago there was an article that came out. I can't really recall, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna post the source of it. Maybe on a later episode I will. But um, in the article it spoke about how New York. City police departments is actually spending a lot of money on police overtime, right? And the reason why they're spending a lot of money on police overtime is because they don't have a lot of cops available in the department compared to a couple years ago. So you have to think about it as like a business, right? If you have a restaurant and let's just say you need a grill person, a person washing dishes and a person in the front, if all the people that you have employed all co-work in the front, then it's going to take more work to get the job done, right? And this is not an insult to New York City cops. I don't, you know, I want to make sure that I show my utmost respect to them because that is a very difficult job. But you have to say that the job that it would originally take one now these days because of, you know, the bail reforms and all the legislations that is against the cops, it takes five to do the job of one now. You know what I'm saying? On top of the fact that there isn't enough cops in, in the department to take care of the amount of crimes that we have in the city as of late. So it's a very overwhelming job. You know, for the most part, city council does not back cops. The public perception of, of cops in New York City, if you live in New York, you would know that, you know, it's, it's not horrible, but it's, it's definitely not, not good at all. And again, I have reason to believe that that has more to do with uh, situations that have happened throughout the years more than, um, you know, what people try to make it seem like there's, you know, racism involved or some type of inequality going on and things like that, because the numbers don't show that. You know, when you look at uh, these crime numbers and you look at uh, the race that commits the most uh, crimes in New York City right now is blacks, you know, and that makes up um, over 90 percent 
of the population. 90% of the crimes in New York City are happening by African Americans. And then on top of that, 90% of the victims that are affected by these crimes are African Americans. So, you know, they could sit here and tell you that it's it's a crime against, you know, race and black people and all these things, but I I, you know, Part of the reason why I started this podcast is to clarify that, that it has nothing to do with that, and it has to do with so much more that they possibly don't want you to realize. And some of the notable notes uh, coming from the New York Police Department budget that the mayor and the city council made back in 2022, right? And I, I, I pointed this out. I couldn't find the recent one because it didn't give me detail to detail like this one did. But um, I kind of wrote this down because I want you guys to see what the police department, which... You know, just to put a definition on it, like they're they're the ones that are supposed to serve and protect and protect the public. And, you know, for all of you that don't know, the police department is completely separate from um, the federal government. Technically speaking, part of, you know, what it means to be Americans, to have a local police department that best serves the city, you know, that's put together by the people of that city. So some of those notable changes from the 2022 New York Police Department budget were they added 13.3 million to account for the paid Juneteenth holiday, so making sure that cops get paid for Juneteenth. They deducted 13.5 million for uniform allowance, 3.8 million less for NYPD's fleet of vehicle and motorcycles, 19 million less for spending other than personal services, meaning anything that does not relate to an employee, such as supplies, utilities, equipment, and contractual services. 46 million was reduced in personal services, which accounts for salaries and fringe benefits. NYPD overtime was also under budgeted by 206 million. 558 million decrease to the administration budget, which includes the commissioner's offices, information and technology and labor relations, among other departments. So if you ask me, just judging from the way that the budget was put together this year, this is not very cop-friendly city council. And I always say, I actually had this conversation not too long ago, was like, if we're not going to make sure that our cops, they're not properly paid or prepared to protect the people let the new york city citizens at least be able to carry guns if we're not going to put money into the department that's going to keep us safe then allow us to keep each other safe you know and maybe it'll it'll change the narrative of crime in the city just a little bit but that's just my personal opinion you know who am i to (laughs) to say that so that's that and i'm gonna end it with the topic of corruption, you know, and I know it's a general topic, it's a big topic that could go in so many ways, but just to put into more perspective, just the corruption of, for example, the Transportation Department of New York City is literally selling our streets to companies like Lyft, Uber, Get Around. I forget what the other eight companies are called, but they practically all do the same thing. They offer delivery services, they offer car rental services, but in the back and they do that by buying off the streets, building more bike lanes to convince you to use these services, and also so that the employees, the Uber Eats employees and the DoorDash employees and all of them have a passage to continue to do this job that, you know, somehow for the past four years has been prioritized by our city government over other things like education.
education and sanitation and the safety of the people of New York and in the subways and things like that. There are literally meetings, community meetings, where these companies, they bring their people and their character to show up to these meetings in order to present a solution that is clouded with words like traffic safety and environmental issues and things of that nature, when in reality, all they want to do is take you off the streets, convince you to take a subway that is unsafe, filled with crime, filled with homelessness, while they, right around the city, excuse me, in their cars, with not much traffic because the only people that will be riding around the city when the congestion, the congestion pricing is applied are the people that can afford to actually pay that $15 to come in and out of the city while everybody else is riding the subway. You can also talk about CUNY, which is a very, is a much longer, more difficult story to explain because that has so many layers that has to get peeled back. But I just want to give you guys a general perspective as to what to expect in the upcoming episodes because, again, this is not something that just, for the most part, just happened in the last four years. These are things that have been implemented into New York City since I remember when I was in middle school, right? And I know some of y'all are saying, what? But that's, that's exactly what it is. Some of these things did not just start. A lot of these things had to be implemented strategically into New York City in order for us to be where we're at today. And you can see how they continuously, even Mayor Adams to this day is talking about jobs are up, crimes are down, when anybody that has walked that walks around New York City five days a week knows that that is not the case. And all this sounds jumbled up or an overflow of information only because there are two words or a group of words that you may not understand that you probably heard but you probably brushed off your shoulders because you didn't understand the meaning or the proper perspective to uphold these words on. And the words are socialism and communism. And we've heard these words in schools. We've been taught about, you know, maybe the philosophies of it in, in college. I know some college students have mentioned to me that these, you know, some of these things are being taught. But the reason why it's important to know this is because socialism and communism is something that's been going on in the world, worldwide, for years to come. It's not a race thing. It's not a rich versus poor thing. It's simply a group of people with a collective um, way of thinking. In the words of socialism, communism, it takes away the value of human life. Right, And not everything in the world is perfect or meant to be perfect, but there is a way of doing things, right? There is a way of doing things that makes sense and that, you know, it can benefit more people than not. So a lot of these, you know, policies, whether you go to housing, right, how it's attacking landlords and private property owners, right? So how is that going to convince somebody like me who's, you know, who's lived there all my life or even somebody that's lived there longer than me? How is anybody going to grow? up with the American dream of one day owning a property and leaving a legacy for their family or for their last name, right? Or even the attacks on people that have to pay the $15 congestion pricing, right? Like that is an attack on people that own private cars. We have to understand that the th this is a perfect example of government oversight, of literally the government overstepping their power and what they were voted in for in order to take control into their own hands. I would never sit here and say that I am anti-government, right? Because I do understand that a, a well-functioning society needs a group of people that can lead the majority, right? That can lead the majority to a better life 
um, and a better way of doing things. So I will never sit here and say that I'm anti-government, but I do understand that government are made up of people, people that are flawed, people that make mistakes, people that, you know, deal with the same things that every other regular person deals with, jealousy, greed, you know, all the other deadly sins and things like that. So it becomes dangerous when people decide to think that people in government are not the same as any regular person or as if they are this godlike structure that just gets everything right. Or when politicians decide to paint you this picture of everything that we coming up with is right and if you decide to go against it, then you don't understand the bigger picture and you're called a bigot, all these other names. So, you know, I hope that you guys have gained uh, more of a perspective as to what we're going to be talking about on this show and within the other episodes. I didn't go into detail about the topics that I mentioned because I wanted to leave it for the upcoming episode. So if you guys definitely do want to dive deep with me into this, because at the end of the day, you know, if you believe in this thing called the Matrix, New York City is the media capital of the world as well. So if we are in this thing called the Matrix and you live in New York, we're literally in the middle of it. And the only way that we're going to get out of it is by one, identifying it, two, confronting it, and then three, doing something about it. So that concludes the end of the first episode. My hope is that I was able to open up your minds as I am on a mission to do. The only thing I ask is that you guys please comment, share your thoughts like subscribe share the podcast make sure that people in new york city get this information because as i said the only way we getting through all of this all of this uncertainty that we've been dealing with for the last couple years is through knowing exactly what's going on and why it's going on so um until next time